Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy holidays from all of us at Deep State Radio. This holiday season, treat yourself and a friend to a DSR membership. For a limited time when you become a member, you can give a friend or family member a free membership. If you purchase an annual membership, you can give an annual membership. When you purchase a monthly membership, you can give a monthly membership. Members receive exclusive bonus content, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and access to our bi-weekly notes from the sub-basement. Our members-only content written twice per week by host David Rothkoff. Act now and take $20 off an annual membership or $2 off a monthly membership. Visit bit.ly slash member news code HOLIDAY2021 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash member and code HOLIDAY2021. Thank you. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the podcast. A few weeks ago, I was looking at a foreign policy website, and I saw that our friend Stephen Walt had undertaken an argument with our friend Ian Bremmer over whether technology companies might someday supersede states. Ian Bremmer had, shortly before that, had an article in Foreign Affairs in which he sketched out several scenarios about the relative power that technology companies and states may enjoy in the future. And I thought, this is really interesting. And then I thought, I'm a nerd for finding this interesting. And then I thought, well, our audience is all nerds uh, and we need a kind of a, a nerd fest. You know, we need a kind of a debate over this kind of thing. And people would be bound to enjoy it if Steve and Ian would engage, frame their articles, and then sort of go back and forth. I'm going to sort of remain in the background here. For those of you who are interested in my views on this, I direct you to a book I wrote like some number of years ago, like 10 years ago or 12 years ago, called Power Inc., which was about the struggle between corporations and states and how corporations had gradually usurped state power and in some cases supplanted it. So that may have been part of the reason for my interest in all of this. But I think the place to begin is with Ian, who is, of course, the founder and CEO of Eurasia Group, which is a leading consultancy and also has its own puppet show. It's probably the only major consultancy with its own puppet company. But perhaps, Ian, you can begin by laying out the thesis of your article. First of all, I'm delighted to be with both of you, friends, David and Steve. This is this is the kind of thing that when you get this request, you don't you don't hesitate because it is entirely too much fun and wonky. And I had forgotten that you wrote that book, David. And as soon as you mentioned <laughs> so it, so many no, but, people have no, forgotten. But as that soon I've as you book. mentioned it, I remembered. And and indeed, it reminded me 
of a book that I wrote a little after yours, if I remember, called The End of the Free Market. The subtitle was Who Wins the War Between States and Corporations? And I mention it because at the time I was thinking about, well, in the United States, corporations kind of capture the state, capture the regulatory process. In China, the state captures corporations. And since China is going to be on a path to being the largest economy in the world, what do we think about state capitalism versus the free market? What's a global hybrid economy going to look like? And, and I was happy to leave the debate there until the tech companies started becoming increasingly dominant in their space. And so the idea behind this piece is that there's something fundamentally different about tech companies than there has been about the big U.S. industrials, about Standard Oil, about the Aluminum Corporation of America, pre-New Deal, about all about Saudi Aramco. I mean, look, there have been storied, very, very powerful corporations, but ultimately they're all operating in the physical world where sovereignty is determined by governance and where power is held by governments ultimately and the, the use of force, all of this. And what I see in tech companies is that in the digital realm, tech companies are increasingly sovereign entities and they actually express state-like power in their own walled digital gardens, which is not such a big deal if they're small and they're marginal, but increasingly they're becoming large and powerful. A few quick examples I'll give you and then I'll, I'll stop. One is when we think about cyber attacks, I mean, the most important successful attack against the United States and its allies, governments and corporations and private individuals was SolarWinds, the SolarWinds attack last year. The American government was not even aware of the attack until a U.S. corporation made them aware. And the response was not made by the U.S. government. It was made by the corporations. So national security in the digital space is increasingly dominated by these tech companies. Second point is, of course, what happened after the election and particularly after January 6th. For me, at least, it was the most traumatic episode in the U.S. political space of my lifetime. For me, I would say more so than 9-11 because it was domestically incited by a sitting president of the United States. And the response did not exist from government. The response was from tech companies who deplatformed a sitting president of the U.S. and took parlor off of their platforms so that there wasn't an ability to engage in, and organize on the part of these individuals. And then, of course, identified the people through their platforms that were actually involved in the insurrection. So I, mean, I can give you a lot more examples, but my point is these tech companies and the, the importance of data, the importance of cryptocurrency, the importance of the digital and virtual realm is only becoming exponentially greater. And I don't think technology companies are in any way supplanting the state in the physical world or meat space, as they would refer to it. But I think that in the virtual world, actually, these tech companies are functionally becoming geopolitical actors in and of themselves. And uh, I, I could go further, but that seems like a good way to kick it off. Excellent way to kick it off. And Pan, 
senior article in Foreign Affairs, Steve Walt, who is, as our listeners knows, a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School, thought to respond in foreign policy. And as soon as I started reading it and he said, Ian's a friend of mine, that's a telltale sign when you're writing an article that you're about to blow up somebody's argument. And I knew I would really get that this would be entertaining. And it was really interesting. So, Steve, maybe you can describe your response. That was actually not a sort of preemptive way of alerting the reader that I was about to load the shotgun. Because, in fact, uh, Ian and I agree on a lot here. He doesn't think states are going to disappear. And I don't think big tech is going to disappear. They're going to coexist. The question is the degree of influence or control, sort of which one's going to win out and where. I think it's an exaggeration to say, as Ian does in his article, that large technology companies are rivaling states for geopolitical influence. They may be rivaling rivaling Burundi for geopolitical influence, but they're not rivaling Russia or China or the United States or Germany or, or others. I think it's also an exaggeration to say that they have taken control of aspects of society, the economy, national security that were long the exclusive preserve of the state. They play a role in some of those realms, but they haven't, in my view, taken control. I think, you know, even if Ian's right, that they are exercising a form of sovereignty in the digital realm. I mean, one of the points I make is that there is a big difference between digital space and physical space. Digital space is nice. It's really useful. It's fun. We all engage in it. This podcast is a manifestation of all of that. You can do a lot of useful things with it, but it isn't essential. And we know that because mankind somehow had managed to live without the digital realm for millennia, uh, you know, until the last 30, 40 years or so. Physical space is indispensable. It's where we live. It's where we grow food. It's where we get water. It's where we breathe. And that's why who controls the physical space is really important. And of course, even big tech companies have to be someplace. They have to have servers that are located in physical space. Their employees who may write code all day have to go home to homes. Amazon has to drive trucks to deliver stuff to us. So the physical world is actually far more important. And even if these companies are exercising enormous influence, even sovereignty in digital space, digital space is still in some respects a small part of the human experience, and it's a dispensable, even if dispensing with it would be costly. Uh, And then just a couple of other quick points. I mean, you know, this is something we may disagree on, that, that companies of all kinds exist within a legal and regulatory framework that's created, that is created by governments. So the internet has grown up, you know, in, in the way it has in part because of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which essentially limits liability. That's now changing in lots of places. China has cracked down on its tech companies. Europe has imposed privacy restrictions. And you're even seeing a lot of movement now in the United States to try and bring these companies under control. That may fail, and it's not going to eliminate them, but it's going to create, it seems to me, a regulatory framework in which they they operate. And that brings me to sort of the last point I'll make, and then we can go back and forth. We've heard about the decline or the erosion or the collapse of the state uh, for a long time. And there have been lots of revolutionary technologies in the past. You know, I was thinking not not just of big steel or railroads or things like that, but what about, you know, radio and television? The big TV networks used to dominate 
the news. We had three of them. We didn't have nearly the plethora of news sources we have now. And they had a lot of impact. In fact, the impact was often limited to individuals. So in 1968, when Walter Cronkite went to Vietnam, came back and told Americans that we weren't going to win that and we needed to negotiate a solution, LBJ said, I've lost Cronkite. If I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. CBS, one company, one person, enormous influence. But you wouldn't have argued that CBS was taking over or was beginning to exercise sovereignty. So this may not be all that new a phenomenon. We've seen revolutionary technologies before, but radio, airplanes, television, et cetera, none of those things really altered the fundamental nature of world politics or the dominant role that states have and I think will continue to play. A lot of good stuff there, Steve. Let's see where I probably should start with the place where I most strongly disagree. And that is the idea that governments are going to be able to effectively regulate these companies in the digital space in the near term. I think that is clearly false for a number of reasons. And by the way, I even think it's false in China, but it's, it's clearly false in the United States and Europe. And I think one reason for it is because the tech companies simply are innovating faster then the governments have the ability to understand what they need to regulate. I mean, you've seen, I mean, Facebook is really in the stew right now. They're getting hit by everybody. Their response is we're hiring 10,000 new people. We're developing meta, we're rebranding, we're doing the metaverse. When you talk to the tech CEOs, they're not concerned about the regulations that are hitting. They're like, okay, they'll find out in two to five years, they'll figure out what are the three things they're going to sue us on. We'll lawyer up in those places. But right now we've got way too much to do. Right now, we've got far too much money. We've got far too much to invest in, far too much to develop our business. Also, the people that are in government don't really understand these technologies. They don't understand the space. They have a hard time hiring because they're way too expensive to actually hire in those places. And the architecture, the institutional framework for regulating these companies just doesn't really exist in the government. There, China has more capacity than the Americans, but where it would sit, We don't have a world data organization. We don't have the architecture to respond to cyber internationally or domestically the way we do things. We have to build it and we will build it, but the tech companies are moving faster. So again, I'm not saying it'll never happen, but I'm saying that in the course of the next five to 10 years, it won't happen. In fact, this problem will get much more significant, challenging more. Now, the other things I don't disagree with you strongly about. I think it's a matter of degree and emphasis. I certainly don't think states are going away. And I don't think that states are losing control of the things that they have historically done. I think that there are new things that tech companies are dominant in that are increasingly important to social contract and experience. So, I mean, one thing that we haven't brought up, neither of us have brought up yet, but I think is really important is that Increasingly, the way you think as a citizen is shaped more by your interactions in virtual worlds and digital worlds and intermediated by algorithms that these tech companies are responsible for and the rules of these walled virtual gardens than by the the real world that you operate in as a day-to-day citizen. 
it is true that we've lived without those digital worlds before. Of course, we've also lived without currency and we've lived without electricity and try shutting those things down and society would break apart. And I'm not sure if you did break, shut those things down suddenly that states would continue to exist the way they did. So I don't find the fact that there's we don't have enough historicity around digital means it suddenly doesn't matter. I, I think it's the fact that it's grown so important, so critical in such a short period of time, and it's getting more immersive and much broader. I, I mean, I think about cryptocurrency in this way. Cryptocurrency at $1 trillion maybe doesn't bother you too much. Very soon, it's going to be $10 trillion. And when it's $10 trillion, and when you have a few centibillionaires in the United States running around with the ability to capture policy and ensure that they aren't effectively regulated. But the purpose of crypto is actually to fundamentally undermine the dollar and other fiat currencies, which are kind of fundamental to what it means to be a state with sovereignty. It's one of the core pillars. I think that that suddenly means digital versus real space. It matters an awful lot. I had some other uh, points too, but I feel like that's already gone on too much. So let me, let me leave it there. So here's a point we agree on, and then I'll disagree. We agree that governments may not innovate or may not regulate effectively, and emphasis on effectively in the near term for all of the reasons you just laid out, that they don't understand them well enough, that these companies are innovating rapidly and all of that. That doesn't mean they won't regulate them. They may write laws that aren't as optimally efficient as we would like. They may not be able to control every aspect but they may be able to do all sorts of other things that begin to limit some of the powers that these companies now have. Even if you started breaking up some of them in various ways for anti-monopoly reasons, you might actually generate more competition. You might diminish the power of some of the algorithms because they wouldn't be operating seamlessly across so many different platforms as well. So I think in, in your statement, the word effectively is doing a lot of work. And, you know, None of uh, authoritarian countries will find it easier to do this. They may be either more or less inept at it. But I think you're, you're going to see that the more of these companies exercise control or exercise political influence, the more uncomfortable politicians and governments are going to be with that. And that means they will try to find ways to bring them under control. You know, the Republican Party may discover that what was good for Donald Trump is not always good. Uh, for them. And therefore, there needs to be some regulation here as well. The other thing to remember is, you know, let's just keep in mind what's been going on the last 20 or 30 years while the digital realm has emerged. We don't see states becoming less important. We see states in some respects becoming more important. There are more of them today than there were 10 years ago. The numbers keep growing up. 50 members of the United Nations in 1945 nearly 200 today. The public sector share of GDP keeps going up, despite all of the efforts to limit the size of the state. And then when an emergency strikes, like a pandemic or a terrorist attack or a financial crisis, people don't call up Tim Cook at Apple and say, please fix this for us. Mark Zuckerberg, bail us out of this one. No, they turn to governments to socialize risks. They turned to the European Central Bank, which was created by governments to do it. Big tech has been somewhat useful in parts of the pandemic, but most of the responses have been responses by governments, not as effective as we would have liked. And by the way, the big tech that has mattered most in the pandemic 
hasn't been any of the companies you talked to. It's been big pharma, right? It's Moderna or Pfizer that have done the most with the pandemic as well. So, you know, I guess I'm willing to concede the activities within the digital space, but I don't think the digital space is going to be where most of the action in politics uh, still remains, even if it's a platform uh, where things get mediated. And then one final point, I think it may be true that if if your time frame is the next five or 10 years, you won't see this phenomenon coming to an end. And new technologies take a long time to wrestle in. It took 30, 40 years to bring railroads in the United States, private railroads under control through uh, the Interstate Commerce Act uh, as well. The United States, uh, you know, had lots of private banks in the 19th century, and we also had lots of financial panics. And it was only in the 20th century when we started developing government institutions and knowledge of economies so that governments could start avoiding the same kinds of financial panics or the frequency with which we had them uh, in the past. So I, I guess I don't believe that this is all going to be a easy task for governments to manage, but I think ultimately they will. And if you had to ask who's going to be the last institution standing 50 or 100 years from now, my bet would be on states and not on Facebook. Well, first of all, I would agree with you that I wouldn't bet on Facebook because I think the principal threat to Facebook is not the state. The principal threat to Facebook is either the Winklevoss brothers or whoever the next Facebook. 2.0, 4.0 is going to end up being because these companies are relatively new despite their extraordinary power and the creative destruction in the space is extraordinary. Part of the reason why the states don't regulate them effectively or ineffectively, I would argue the states largely don't regulate them in terms of their power and their influence is precisely because of that churn, but it also makes them vulnerable to other such companies. So I accept that. A couple of cheap tactical points, but just given that you said some stuff that I can play off of, I'll make them anyway. One is the fact that there are a lot more states right now does not make those states more powerful or more important. I mean, a proliferation of ever smaller and fragmented states could make the argument exactly in the other direction. Now, the United States and China, I think one of the more interesting things that's happening is that the US and China look to be much more powerful globally because they dominate the technology space. And yet, most of those companies are not really aligned with or understood by the governments. And I'm trying to make an argument, actually, first of all, that U.S.-China Cold War is made somewhat less likely by the fact that there is not that alignment, that the big tech companies are very different than the governments themselves. So on the one hand, you have a consolidation and concentration of geopolitical power. But on the other hand, it has a little bit less to do with the governments themselves than the fact that, yes, indeed, public spending is growing and all of this. You mentioned that in response to emergencies, states are doing the most. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think it depends on the emergency. I mean, certainly following the 2008 global financial crisis, that was true. And in part because central bank governors are somewhat independent, they read from the same playbook and they have the sovereign fiat currency. But when I look at climate change, after decades of governments doing very, very little, I would argue that part of the reason why the COP26 was a success was because of the private sector, that much more came from the banks moving capital 
much more came from the private sector responding to populations and the governments are actually following the markets. Now, that's not tech companies we're talking about, but it, it the tech companies aren't particularly core operators in the environmental space. I just am mentioning the fact that I think that there's a much broader conversation around non-state actors, state actors, and multiple stakeholderism and all of that stuff. But to go back to the core of the argument here, I think a fundamental thing that I'm trying to argue that we haven't really quite addressed is the explosive and exponential nature of how much data matters to day-to-day life in the world is unlike anything we've ever seen from outside states before. And I'm, I'm so I'm talking here about surveillance and surveillance capitalism, where human beings are not consumers, but instead are products and are treated as such. It's fundamentally subversive to the notion of the U.S. social contract, the Western social contract. And yet it's the dominant way that a lot of Americans engage with capitalism today, which is really interesting. I'm talking about the extraordinary and immersive addictiveness of these algorithms, which change your information space, which creates the disinformation and the fake news that we see, and which within, I think, two years, three max, once you have artificial intelligence bots that convincingly pass the Turing test, so a human being cannot tell a fellow citizen from a bot. I think the companies that control those bots suddenly are in a very different position in terms of the power that they exert on society and citizens. And and I already mentioned the cyber point where increasingly a large component of national security that is growing, that is not being reduced, is actually in a space that the tech companies have more expertise, have more awareness, have more surveillance and more ability to respond than the governments do. I would argue that those things are unprecedented in modern American history. We're not ready for them. And I'm not suggesting, to go back to your initial point, which was correctly taken, I'm not suggesting that Facebook or Google or Amazon or Tencent or Alibaba are as powerful as the US or Russia. I don't believe that at all. Burundi is not the right equivalent. But nonetheless, I don't believe that. My point is, is that when we think about geopolitical outcomes and the balance of power, for all of my lifetime, the principal actors in the totality of that space were governments. And I'm now saying that there's a significant minority, but nonetheless component of that space that is growing very fast, that is actually occupied principally by tech companies, a small number of tech companies, and not by governments. And that changes how we do geopolitical analysis on all of those issues going forward. For me, that was the game changer. Doesn't mean states are going to go away. Ian has legitimated the use of cheap tactical points. Uh, So so I'm going to do the same thing uh, starting off. Seems to me you have slightly shifted your ground here. Because the original article is talking about the power of big technology companies, but now you're basically saying none of these companies really are all that powerful because they're all vulnerable to the turn of the market. So the market, the the arena will look totally different in five or 10 years. Some of these companies will have disappeared. They'll be replaced by others. 
So it's sort of the question, is it the impact of big tech as institutions or just technology itself? There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. If you talk about big tech exercising control, somebody's got to be doing that. It can't just be that there's this autonomous technology looming out there that nobody is in fact in charge of. And if there's somebody in charge of it, then people can be held accountable, can be held responsible, can be subject to laws, can be subject to regulation. You can make an argument, it seems to me, that they're going to be so pervasive, so influential, have so much money to spend to buy politicians that no one will ever be able to bring them under control. I'll take that bet, but it's at least plausible when you consider the nature of uh, politics in at least some countries as well. I think the other final thing to sort of say about this is when push comes to shove, and occasionally push will come to shove, which of these different competing entities are going to have the capacity to actually win, whether they do wisely or not. And for all of the things that surveillance capitalism and these companies can do, there are real limits to what their capabilities are. They are vulnerable to the market because, in fact, no one's really loyal to them, not in the way people are loyal to countries, not to the way they are loyal to nations. Uh, you know, as I said in my uh, original response, nobody is going to put their lives on the line to defend Mark Zuckerberg. No one's going to enlist in the Tencent army to go off and make sure that Tencent is is protected uh, as well. And that means if push comes to shove, you know, states will retain what Weber talked about, the control, the monopoly of the ultimate sanction, the monopoly of organized violence. And I don't like to talk about, you know, sort of rounding up the Apple executives. But if it comes to a struggle, all of these companies, regardless of their influence, are going to ultimately be subjected to political authority the same way corporations have been for you know centuries as well. And I think that's where this ultimately comes out. Final short rejoinder to the last point, digital wars will be fought by digital armies, not real soldiers. And I think that is also a part of the challenge. As a a person who has sat here listening and appreciating your views, I'm going to float one last idea before we conclude. And that is that you guys agree. Because essentially what you're both saying is the nature of power constantly changes. The distribution of power constantly changes. Corporations actually predate nation states. Corporations established a thousand years ago, nation states as we know them, are 400-year-old phenomenon. Gradually, over the course of the past 150 years, largely thanks to the United States, some corporations have grown, grown into transnational entities that do have power that you know, greatly exceed that of the Burundis of this world. An example that I used and somebody else used in a book is Exxon's annual sales exceed the GDP of Sweden. Now, sales and GDP are different, but the point is the economic resources available to Exxon allow it to have a, a larger effective diplomatic impact than Sweden does around the world. It's got more government offices in more countries with more ability to influence than Sweden does. And digital enterprises will grow in importance and the digital realm will become part of the geopolitical realm. And uh, states and, and corporations will vie back and forth to see who controls what. But we live in a world in which 
the use of force is something we don't revert to as often as before because the costs are so high. And in those circumstances where the state monopoly on the use of force is not available, then others will have an advantage because they may have more economic resources or more other forms of leverage. And so I think you're both describing a transition uh, from one power structure globally to another. I'll give you each a minute to tell me why I'm wrong. I, I don't think you're wrong. We, we agree on a lot. I think the implication of what you just said, and this is something I think Ian and I, Ian and I probably do agree on, is that which states uh, most effectively harness and take advantage of these emerging capabilities you know, are going to have an, a geopolitical advantage. That obviously, if you try to completely disengage or if your regulatory efforts are so destructive to your tech sector that you fall behind the quote unquote power curve, that's going to be a huge disadvantage. This is not new, however. That's been true for you know, which countries mastered rifles faster or which countries figured out how to run a decent navy. So the idea of countries exploiting technological advantages or advances is not really a new development, but it will clearly shape the sort of global balance of power for years, uh, if not decades to come. I think we agree on that. And the second thing is, if we can't resolve this disagreement now, I propose that we settle it on a tennis court next time we're together. This is this is the last that last point is is absolutely critical. I, I also do agree with what you guys just said. I think the place that I find so much is changing is that I believe that not only do governments will they be trying to harness the power of technology and these technology companies for themselves, but it's not clear to me which of these models of the technology companies themselves are going to win. One thing in my piece that I, we didn't talk about is the fact that I see these technology companies orienting towards different geopolitical models. Some of them very much trying to become national champions in a more fragmented splinter net where they align with the US and the West or with China. They make more money, they have more power that way. Other companies not doing that at all. And instead saying, no, we want to have global access, global markets. We want to capture the regulatory environment, but we don't want to be aligned with any governments. We want to be explicitly independent from that. And then a third set of individuals, tech billionaires and companies that are saying, actually, we're creating things where we think the state will be completely irrelevant. We want to undermine the state. And that's the crypto issue, but it's other issues as well. I mean, Steve clearly believes that the state ultimately wins and remains dominant. I think that it's an open question. I think there's actually going to be a lot of uncertainty in the space over the next 10 years. And I'm not willing to make a strong bet yet on which way it's going to end up. Well, I think the idea of resolving this on a tennis court is an excellent idea, but that's only because I'm confident that I would beat both of you. You know, I'll back that up. You know, Steve, Steve ended his article with you saying that he was willing to make you a bet, a financial bet, that his argument was stronger than yours. I'm willing to do the same thing with, with regard to tennis. In any event, it is a great pleasure to talk to both of you. It is a great pleasure to listen to both of you. You are both brilliant and, more importantly, interesting. And I think the issues that you are raising are uh, really important for people to grapple with. And it's good to take a break from the daily news and the news cycle and to think with a little bit of perspective. This is something both of you always do. And so I encourage people to follow you in all of your incarnations in the digital realm and in the real realm. 
And uh, hopefully we'll have you back sometime soon. So thanks to Ian Bremer. Thanks to Steve Walt. Thanks to everybody for listening. You want to know more about what we're doing in the digital realm and also in the live realm, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And uh, we look forward to uh, more of this in the future. Take care of yourselves out there, everybody. Bye-bye.